This is Genesis chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer your name shall be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations and for an everlasting covenant." to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, but behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham... Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abram and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those brought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. 
This is the word of the Lord, and let's us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us understand what it means. As different and as far away as we are in our culture, Lord, we believe this to be your very word and your covenant with your people. So, Lord, we ask that even now you'd show us how this has to do with us, the implications of your covenant with Abraham. Lord, we also ask that you would bless uh, not only our understanding, but, Lord, our trust in you uh, for, for big things, for small things. Lord, from uh, today until we meet next time and the week in between, would you see fit to use us for your glory, your honor? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, if it sounds like we're repeating ourselves at this point, we're now in the 17th chapter of Genesis. Genesis has 50 chapters, but since chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, we've been talking about the covenant quite a bit. And there's been times where I have said, we'll talk about this more later. Well, today is included in that, but there's still later more to come. The covenant is a big deal in the book of Genesis, and we would be wrong into thinking that it's just a repetition. Every time it's brought up, something is added to it. This is similar to chapter 12 and more similar to 15, but there's more here than we read in 15. The earlier chapters gave us the basic pattern of grace and the faith that must answer grace. We talked about how God looked down and he saw Abram and he chose him. Abram hadn't done anything to deserve being chosen, but that's not how it works. God chooses and he offers grace. And then as that grace is offered, then Abram has the chance to believe in response to that grace. We read last time uh, in chapter 15, two weeks ago, and Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's all we've studied so far. It's been about grace and the response to that grace, which is belief. But here in chapter 17, we're going to see the implications of the grace and its belief revealed. There's more to it. Faith must show itself in obedience. Uh, When we talk about salvation, it's always faith and repentance. Repentance, the things that I've done that are contrary to God's laws And how from now on there will be all the effort I can muster. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit that comes along and enables us to do things we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But there is faith and then there is obedience. The inner faith will require an outer seal. Most of what we just read had to do with an outer seal, a marking that makes these men different than other men because they believe different than other men. Technically, if we're looking at theological terms, we're talking about imputed righteousness. That's not righteousness we bring to the table, but given to us by God Himself. And then how that righteousness is expressed through our devotion to the Lord because of what He's done for us. So we're going to run through the chapter in summary, trying to understand how the story unfolds, and then we'll look at how the covenant has to do with us here and now. So if you'll look back at verse 1, 
in chapter 17 where we started when Abram was 99 years old. So he's almost 100. Uh, the Lord appears to him. The Lord says, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. He's already initiated the covenant, but he's expanding and uh, elaborating on the covenant here. Uh, and multiply you greatly. We've already heard of that. But then we see Abram falling on his face. So some 13 years have passed since the last chapter, what we studied last week. He's now 99. God speaks, walk before him, which is not uncommon of things said by kings in this period of time, especially when the king would make a decree. This is what you must do. Uh, walk before me would be a good way of saying, uh, so let it be written, so let it be done, you know, from the Ten Commandments with Pharaoh, you know. Um, I'm talking about the movie. We'll get to Exodus later, how it really happened. Yul Brenner's not part of it. Um, we'll see where we're at here. He also says that he's to be blameless, which can be tripped over. Uh, that doesn't mean perfect. It never does in Scripture. We're told that Job was blameless before the Lord, but that just meant that Job's life was marked by integrity because we do see an attitude that is sinful by the end of the book. Um, chapter 15, the promise had more to do with land, but chapter 17 right here has a focus on his descendants. And as if all this comes together to overwhelm Abraham, he falls on his face, which is something we haven't seen quite like that before. Uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when you've got Adam, there's nothing about him falling on his face. Rather arrogantly, he said, well, it's this woman you gave to me that got me into this problem. Uh, the relationship that's forming between God and Abraham, and we've seen Abraham faithful, and we've seen him faithless. It seems to be a deeper relationship than we've seen so far, even with Noah. Uh, so, verses 4 through 8, if you want to make notes in your Bible or on a piece of paper, however you keep track of some of these things, uh, a convenient way to divide up the content, verses 4 through 8 cover the promises most of which we've heard already. Uh, the King James Version, NASB, and NIV use the same translation that we don't see in the ESV, which is what I read from, the words, as for me. That's a nice way to frame a list of promises. As for me, here's what I'm going to do. And then by the time you get to verses 19 through 14, you've got, as for you. So that's the new part, the new territory in this chapter we haven't seen before. So far, God has not asked anything of Abraham. He asks of Abraham. And there's going to be a third, and as for your wife, Sarah. But those are good little places in there to uh, keep the material separate. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant's with you. Should be the father of a multitude. I'm going to change your name from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Um, and I like the way, for I have made you the father of a multitude. Uh, he's 99, and he only has one child, and that's through Hagar, not his wife Sarah. So still, the, the ask of, of the faith department out of this man is, is now 
climbing off the charts. Look at verse 19 or 9 through 14. God said to Abram, as for you, here's what you should do, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Okay? This is my covenant, all right? Which you shall keep between me and you for your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. It might have been awkward to read through that. Maybe next time I can let you read that chapter and say that word over and over and over. Twice at least for each guy that had it done. What is that all about? Well, from this chapter, you're not going to get a clue. That's the crazy thing about this chapter. He's going to say, this is what I expect out of you. And we're going to see him do what is expected of him. Not just him, but every male in his family that very day. But for what? Haven't been told yet. It seems that it simplistically boils down to just one thing. Obedience and commitment. A test to show how committed this man and his men are in taking the next step forward in a covenant that will make great nations full of kings out of all this. So no specific reason is given for why circumcision was to be the sign of the covenant. At Sinai, the moral implications of the covenant will be made clear. But here, it seems commitment is the only thing that we can frame it with. By the end of the chapter, everybody has done this, no matter if they're his children, his children's children as far as the rest of the family goes, or those that they've bought by money with foreigners. You heard it when we read through it. But one thought, and then we'll... Leave it, and we'll come back to it later. But there's no hospitals. There's, there's, there's no doctors. There's no operating room. There's no anesthetic. There's no pain pills. It, as far as the spectrum, 99 down to 13 and even 8 days. Every last one of them did it. I'd say they checked the commitment box. Point taken. We'll keep going. Sarah got a name change along with a due date for Isaac, which is a 12-month due date, not a 9-month due date. Interesting enough. More will be said about Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Ishmael in the coming chapters, but this covers at least a summary of chapter 17. So, for the next few minutes, or the balance of our time, I'd like to discuss because we've been waiting until the covenant would form itself at least enough to see it for what it is, though there's more to talk about, and then contrast and compare that with something that probably every one of us, at least the adults, are familiar with. And that would be, what is the difference between a covenant we see in the Scriptures and a contract, which many of us uh, sign any day. Uh, We've done lots of them. Um, Think of the last time you signed a contract. Maybe think of the first time you signed a contract. I think the last one I probably signed uh, would be for the mortgage on the home. And boy, was that different than the first mortgage, which was before the financial housing collapse. Uh, They decided, I guess, since 
housing market crashed and uh, there's no construction going on. Let's use all the trees to make paper and we'll just have people sign papers and papers and papers and papers and papers and papers. The first one, first contract I ever signed, I think, and I was trying to remember, it was probably the agreement with AT&T for a cell phone when I left the house and moved to Lynchburg. And it looked like uh, it was right there at the big crossroads in Lynchburg, top of the hill, uh, and it looked like an old house. But it had an AT&T sign, and you could sign up for a cell phone. And the contract was one page, but it had the three pieces in it, you know, the whites on top and the yellows in the middle and the pinks on the bottom. You have to write really hard to get all the way to the bottom because that's the one you're going to keep, but the top one they get... And then they'll mail you a bill, and then you mail the check back. You know, so much for the billing cycle. I mean, good grief. This could take a while. But it was a contract of sorts. They would give me certain services, and I would pay my bill. It's very simple. Uh, It protected us, uh, them from being able to not provide the services if I paid for them, or me not paying my bill. It even involved a credit check at that point. Got to be able to establish whether or not I can make those payments. So that was the first. We'll come back to that as we start looking to the differences between a modern contract and God's covenants with his people and how different they look. First of all, God's covenants institute binding relationships. Relationships is the key word there. And contracts are simply, even if they're complicated, an agreement of convenience. That's the difference between the two. How so? Well, a contract is governed by calculation and reciprocal benefit. It can be broken if the penalty for doing so becomes less than the cost of honoring it or if a party reneges on his or her commitment. That's contract. Covenants... God's covenant with people from the pages of Scripture, by contrast, are irrevocably binding and do not play out on a balance sheet of profit or loss. I mean, let's think of a contract. Let's say, uh, do you remember how uh, for the longest time a cell phone contract was a period of 12 months or 24 months or however long that it took the company to recoup the cost of the phone because they were expensive It was kind of their property. You used it if you damaged it. You know, you had to buy it out. And then after a while, when they became cheaper, you'd see companies advertising, we'll buy out your contract, which means that there's more value in we getting your business and us paying off and breaking your contract, sort of. It's as, what does that say? Uh, you know, if you ever get in trouble with the credit department and your score gets in trouble, uh, what will be noted is not paid as agreed, right? That's breaking a contract. Well, with uh, these covenants, it's, it's, it's different, very different. Contracts have obligations at heart. I'm going to give you these services, you give me the money. Covenants have relationships at heart. According to this theologian named Michael Williams, In a contract, the relationship between the parties is conditioned and limited by their commitments to each other as described in the contract's terms. In God's covenants in Scripture, the obligations flow from the relationship. 
if you just think back to Genesis, God says, Abraham, you're my man. I'm going to make nations from you. And God's obligations to him is seen in walking through those cut-up pieces of the animals and then staking all of the collateral on himself. And only the history will tell us that it's his son that he's putting up who's going to pay for Abram's breaking the contract. It's the relationship that motivated all that. Now, between me and a cell phone company, uh, it's an exchange mechanism And we limit that. I only want to know you as far as you provide me a working phone. And all you want to know about me is whether or not I'll pay my bill. We're not going to be friends. I'm not coming over for dinner. You're not going to call me on that cell phone, right? It's my cell phone because I paid you for it. So we're limiting ourselves against abuse from either side. It's a protective convenience of sorts where the covenant is Totally different. Uh, Another theologian says, contracts obey a logic of equivalence. Uh, I'm not going to give you any more phone than you're going to give me money. That's a fair price. If I give you more phone than you pay me money, then you got a good deal and I got a bad one. Or vice versa, if it's not much phone and a lot of money. Make sense? So um, a regime of strict justice in which Unerring calculations determine the just measure of commitment in each case is what a contract aims to do. It's the logic of the transaction and of the market. Reciprocal paradigm in which debts must be paid in full, but no more. How many of you ever thought, you know, I really like my cell phone company. I'm going to pay them an extra 10 bucks this month. How many of you said, you know, I was driving between here and there and I didn't have signal and I needed to call somebody and I'm not paying this month? You might not have gone through with it, but I bet you might have thought so. I've paid, I'm clogged up in the filter. I won't tell you about what I think of the people that I paid so I could watch Hurricanes games and it doesn't work. (laughs) And nobody else has worked either. They're in bankruptcy. Amazon bought them, and maybe next year it'll work better. I know that's why you came to church this morning, to figure out how you can watch Hurricanes games. God's covenants, by contrast, operate according to a logic of abundance, not a logic of equivalence. What does that mean? It means a lavish, gracious, loving paradigm of excess. God walks between the split animal carcasses by himself. God promises Abraham land and a multitude of descendants before he requires his whole house to be circumcised. You notice it wasn't the other way around. Hey, Abraham, you and your uh, whole outfit, this is what I want you to do. And by the end of the day, and maybe I'll give you some land and a bunch of kids. No, the bunch of kids in the land was decades before he got there. What else works like this in the Old Testament? How about... Let my people go. And God takes them with ten plagues over the Red Sea and into the promised land. When does he give them the Ten Commandments? Way after. He gets them out of Egypt first. That's grace. Now I expect obedience. That's the Ten Commandments. Anybody else think of anything that works like this? How about Jesus dying on the cross? For your sins and mine before I or you ever heard of his name. 
How about by 2,000 years? That's grace. It's a covenant. I'll do this for you, and then I expect this in return after I've done what you could not do for yourself. And co-sign the loan, all of the collateral on my end, and none of it on yours. This is the logic of excess, abundance. This is the logic of how much more in all of Paul's letters and the book of Hebrews, so great a salvation. This is beyond the call of duty, beyond what is right and proper, beyond what could or should be demanded on a ledger of credits and debits. All right. The best way I know to describe this in human terms as far as a covenant is we can talk about contracts all day long. We, we, we sign them to keep each other at arm's length to make sure nobody gets hurt. But as far as a covenant which is like what we see God doing here. Who's the author of such, I would say. Where in humanity do we see something even close to resembling a covenant? A wedding vow. Think of the last time we were all in here and had a couple standing down here on the floor, usually ministers down on the floor. After the preliminaries as it is, you go up on the altar because you're going to what? Cut a covenant. Sacrifices must be made. But just think of the mechanics. If you're married, you went through this yourself. shouldn't be that hard to remember backward. But in front of your audience, uh, maybe bridesmaids and groomsmen, officiant, parents on the front rows, and God Almighty himself, you are promising wild and limitless Promises against a reality in the future you know nothing about. Now you think you do, right? I thought I did. You thought you did. But then you were married for a while and you found out, I know nothing. <laughs> I thought I knew some things. And then you might know some things that you never thought you would know, right? But that's, that's built in, at least on our side of a covenant with God who knows it all. Now, if uh, this couple, uh, how many know what they're getting themselves into? None of them. They're not supposed to because marriages are supposed to be based on commitment, not on calculation. The contracts are calculated. The, the cost-benefit calculations are done ahead of time to make sure, before we sign this, better make sure we're getting at least what we want, if not the better end of the deal. Who wants to attend a wedding? where they've printed up in the program these agreements. I expect this, and if I don't get this, well, then after this amount of time, I'm out. That'd be a contract. Here's, here's, here's how you know if you've got a contract. You know what you're getting into. And because you don't know what you're getting into, standing at a marriage altar, it's covenant. And you're not promising I'll trade you this if you'll trade me that. You're promising yourself. Whatever happens. Isn't that how the vows go? Better, worse, richer for poor? I, I don't know, nor can expect what is to come. But here's what I'll give you. I'll give you me. And we'll work it out together as best we can. Whatever it takes. Now that's something people will come down and watch especially ones who've been through it before because it makes them like 
cry and stuff. Right? It's sweet. Oh, there's nothing like it. It, it restores your hope in humanity. Because they've got the whole of their lives ahead of them together. And if they have nothing else, they've at least got each other. Right? They're going to need a lot of marriage counseling. (laughs) But they're going to need a hundred times more from their family, the church family, everybody else. That's just it. If you know what you're getting into, you're entering a contract. You're setting limits on commitment. At least this much, but no more. Cost-benefit analysis calculations. Take that and then put it over against what we read earlier. Abraham has no opportunity to perform a cost-benefit analysis in advance. He does not know what he's getting himself into. He does not calculate. All he knows is that God has spoken to him and made spectacular promises, and that's enough. As for God, he commits to bless Abraham and his descendants while knowing full well about Abraham's future disobedience and about the stubbornness, idolatry, and inveterate grumbling of Abraham's descendants for generations. That's covenant. question is, why would God ever dream up such a thing? And why would we ever be given such a thing? Um, I've been using Christopher Watkin as uh, a source for some of this. I've got numbers of commentaries, and sometimes you can look at the details, and we can talk about all this stuff and how it worked together in the culture that Abram and all these people were involved in. And then there comes a time where you just want to, okay, boil that down to where we are today and help me see what God has offered me through this covenant that started out so bizarrely earlier in the record of Scripture. Uh, And then as I'm reading Christopher Watkin, he uses an illustration that kind of surprised me because you expect out of academics that probably uh, have forgotten more than I'll ever imagine, not just know. He uses, to talk about this point, a scene from a movie, a movie called The Avengers Endgame. Now, I know I've split the room Probably not in half, maybe in like one quarter, three quarters. Usually I like to have an illustration that's broad ranging enough that young and old, uh, if you don't know what Avengers Endgame is, ask your grandkids. (laughs) They might tell you. You probably don't care to watch it. But it's the product of a lot of uh, storytelling investment and billions in the Marvel empire. And uh, the way the story goes, there's this really bad guy named Thanos who has a lot of power he's gathered in certain ways, and he's decided that the world's too full, so he's going to just disappear 50% of all living creatures on the planet and actually does it. And then you've got these superheroes known as Avengers who've lost some of their family members as a result of this, and they're going to try to fix it. But then one of these guys, and I can't remember the number, but it's like six million something or another odds of their ever being successful at going back in time and beating this guy at his own game and preventing that happening. So it's pretty much impossible. It's kind of like C-3PO got in there and gave him the odds. You know that Solo said, never give me the odds. 
I was hoping maybe you saw Star Wars. <laughs> so there's this iconic scene. I think it's built into the trailers where all these guys are getting together, some gals too, and explaining how they've each got their jobs, but it's basically impossible to pull it off. But the tagline is, whatever it takes. If we die trying, we're going to give it a shot because it's going to save half the world. Now, it's a movie that people pay for to go see, so you know it works. You, you don't make money making movies where that doesn't work. But here's what would never work because what I've just described is a covenant. They covenant together. Whatever it takes, we're going to try this if it kills us. Do you think the box office would be interested in a movie where, say, the guy that's Iron Man, Tony Stark, uh, I'll put up $10 million and one year worth of my time. Other than that, uh, it's not good for me. I'm out. That'd be a contract. Contracts don't save the world in, in theaters, do they? Nobody wants to see that movie. Why do we want to see that movie? Because it's a beautiful story. It's where wrongs are righted, where the people that have the guts to be selfless actually change the lives of everyone else, right? Now, here's the difference in that story and this story. This one's true. The God who made the world in six days and rested on the seventh has covenanted with people on this planet such that his son's death can save you from his promised punishment against sin. And that way, the God who made it all is the God who will fix it all. He create you and then redeem you at no cost to you, knowing that you'll be imperfect until the day he sees you face to face. It's a crazy story. The story that all the other great stories that we pay money to watch or listen to or read are made after. I wish I could say there was another religion on this planet that's set up like this. They're basically all contractual. There's no covenants except for this one. God and his son Jesus. I hope you know what you've got in your hands if you're holding your Bible. Not just the best story ever told, but the truth. I hope it's changed your life. I hope you believe it. I hope you'll be able to tell your kids all that cool stuff you see on TV. It, it, it's great storytelling. Let me show you where all that came from. Because of God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whosoever believes doesn't need to perish but can have everlasting life. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the Genesis account of a covenant. Lord, we read today and we're confused at the outset of what was asked of you or by you of these men. We will see in time. It's more spiritual than physical. It's, it's a problem with our heart. It'll be an operation, a cutting away of the heart that will fix our problem. 
In fact, it turns out to be a transplant. You'll give us a new one like yours because the one we've got is broken. Lord, may we fall in love with this story such that it becomes easy to tell to where we're able to find creative ways to put it lower or higher on a shelf where people can receive it as truth. Lord, may we rely on the Holy Spirit's promise that this will not return void. All we must do is scatter it like seed and watch it grow. Lord, we thank you for our families in this church. Would you build us up, make us strong? And Lord, would you see fit to use us in this community around us to bring people with us, not just to church, but to heaven? Lord, we thank you again for your day, your word, your children. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.